Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in April 2023. This episode is all about the cosmological argument or arguments for the existence of God. So we'll be thinking about the various forms the argument's taken, looking at various thinkers who've discussed it, such as Aquinas, Hume and Kant, and think about challenges to it. We'll also see what else we get on to as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Matt Harris, a teacher at Cheltenham College. Hi, Matt. Hi, Simon. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. And we've got Michael Lacewing, who's a teacher at Christ's Hospital School. Hi, Michael. Hello, Simon. Hi, Matt. Uh, great to have both of you with us uh, to record this episode. Okay, so we're going to talk about the cosmological argument for the existence of God. This argument is one of the main arguments given in different religious traditions and at different times for the existence of God and comes in a number of versions. It also appears on several specifications. It's part of the AQA philosophy spec, the religious studies specifications from, from OCR, Edexcel, Educas and others. And it's also on the IB. And if you're studying Scottish hires, then you need to be aware of the cosmological argument because Descartes and Hume were very interested in it, as we will see. Um, so let's start with the basic idea of the argument. Uh, Michael, do you want to start us off on this, please? Yeah, sure. I think the cosmological argument is an attempt to sort of elaborate on the question, why does anything exist? So that's, that's the kind of big question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And there's kind of two ways of, of thinking about that. When we think about something existing, the normal explanation for why it exists, we refer to what caused it. So we've got this idea that, you know, what brought something into being? Why do I exist? Well, my parents met and, you know, the rest is biology. And if we kind of go back to why the human species exists, we might use a theory of evolution or something like that. And we can talk about artifacts. Why does my watch exist? Somebody built it. So our normal kind of explanation to why a particular thing exists is in terms of its specific cause. But the cosmological argument in, in all of its forms says, well, why does anything exist? You know, let's take the whole jolly lot. What is it that can provide us with a kind of final explanation for why there exists anything? So again, one way of thinking about that um, is to think about, so what caused the universe to exist? And we'll come on to that. So there's kind of different ways in which you can kind of think about causes and what a satisfactory causal explanation or ultimate causal explanation of the universe might be. But there's another way of thinking about it as well and why anything exists, which is none of us, it seems, have to have existed. It's perfectly possible we didn't exist. And of course, I didn't exist and I will not again exist in the future. And that seems to be true of plants and trees and animals and, you know, the planet Earth and even the sun one day will cease to exist. And we're told, you know, came into existence sometime in the past. So everything that exists that we experience doesn't have to exist. It's got what's called contingent existence. It can either exist or not. So given that it only exists contingently, it can either exist or not, we need that explanation. Why does it exist rather than not? And the cosmological argument approaches both of, kind of in both of these versions said, well, we're going to need some kind of ultimate cause or we're going to need something which doesn't have contingent existence, to ex which has to exist, which can explain why the things which might exist or might not exist do in fact exist. And that's not 
entirely clear, but the thought here is that we're not looking for individual explanations of individual things, but a kind of big explanation for everything, ultimately. What underpins the existence of anything at all? And that's what the cosmological argument is going to argue is God. That's great. Thanks, Michael. So just to repeat for everyone, we're thinking about uh, an argument that's really aimed at explaining, you know, why is there anything? And as Michael said, we've got two big ideas going on here. We've got causation and we've got contingent existence. And people often distinguish uh, the arguments we're going to be thinking about in terms of either causation or contingent existence. And certainly that's how the AQA philosophy specification uh, thinks about it. Um, and that's how we can probably divide things up as we go through. That's really helpful, Michael. It's probably also worth just commenting or reminding people about the difference between a priori and a posteriori, because that might crop up a bit. Matt, do you want to have a just a quick crack at that? Yeah, sure. So um, a priori arguments are often associated with, um, say, the ontological arguments, which is most famously associated with Ansel. So what we're trying to do here is to think about creating an argument prior to experience or independent of experience. So you can go from a concept of something through deductive reasoning to the conclusion that God exists. The cosmological arguments, very much like the design arguments, uh, are by contrast a posteriori. So in other words, we're starting from the experience of something and then working uh, through reasoning to the idea of God existing. So it's based on a feature of the universe, or the, in this case, of course, the universe itself, uh, as something which exists, and then going through a series of steps, which we'll come on to when we look at particular arguments, and then coming up with the conclusion that um, God exists. Okay, great. Thanks, both of you, for those introductory thoughts. Okay, then, so shall we um, crack on then and think about one of these arguments? Um, I think, Matt, uh, we decided you were going to talk about the Kalam argument first. So do you want to introduce this for us, please? Yeah, sure. So when people think about the cosmological arguments, uh, many people think in the first instance of someone like Thomas Aquinas and his three arguments uh, of this nature. But in fact, the history of it goes further back. And William Lane Craig in his 1979 book of the same name talks about the Kalam cosmological arguments, which can sometimes be overlooked. And this goes back further than the medieval arguments of Aquinas, back to an even earlier medieval time. So the 11th century uh, Islamic philosopher uh, Al-Ghazal. And so this is quite a straightforward argument in many ways. And we have a premise, everything that begins to exist has a cause. And then we have another premise, the universe began to exist. And the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. So uh, this is quite different to later arguments to do with, say, contingency or sufficient reason. So this is a very simple one. Just again, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Great. Thanks, Matt. Um, so then just open it up then. Do we think this argument works? I mean, it's it's quite beautiful because of the simplicity of it. Um, but what what worries might we have with it? Can we unpack the um, the second premise there? So um, let's let's come back maybe when we look at objections in more detail to everything that begins to exist has a cause, and come back to that one. But the universe has a beginning. That's the second claim. Now we might well agree with that now on the basis of science. 
Um, you know, we've got the Big Bang theory, but that's only been around since the 1960s, so it doesn't really qualify as medieval. Um, so why <laughs> you might think, well, what was the reason for thinking that the universe had a beginning way back then? Why not just think like, you know, many cultures that the universe has kind of always been here? And that's kind of an interesting feature of the of the Kalam argument is is this idea that the universe must have had a beginning. It couldn't have existed forever. And this was kind of developed in reflecting on the idea of infinity and the infinity of time. So the argument kind of supporting that claim that the universe must have had a beginning is to notice that the universe is something that exists through time. It's a temporal thing. We exist in time. And then kind of making an argument that uh, something which is temporal can't be infinite. In fact, anything which is actual, they say, can't be infinite. But let's try and think about this. And it gets very mind-boggling, as it does when you're trying to think about the origins of universes very quickly. So if the universe was infinite in time, like it never began, you get some really weird effects. Okay, For example, if it never began, so it's already infinitely old, it can't get any older. So the universe is not getting older as time passes. But surely time passing just makes something older, which is a bit of a paradox. So as long as we think, well, time is passing, the universe is getting older, then it must have been a starting point. Because infinity, going back infinite, there's no starting point at all. And of course, another thought is if the universe is infinitely old, it would have had to, an infinite amount of time would have had to pass before we reach the present. But an infinite amount of time can't ever pass. You can't wait until you've had an infinite amount of time because infinite amounts aren't actually amounts. Infinity isn't a number. So you can never get to the present, which is really weird because here we are in the present and tomorrow's the future and yesterday was the past. Um, So those were kind of arguments reflecting on the nature of time and the nature of infinity to say, sure, we, we might be able to make sense of the concept of infinity within maths. But we can't make sense of the idea of anything actually being infinite. In particular, time can't be infinite. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense that time passes, things get older. All of that requires a starting point. And that was kind of the reason that they presented for that second premise. The universe must have had a beginning in time. And if you guys go, okay, 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 so so the big it did, Big Bang shows that it did, is the Kalam argument now kind of, you know, satisfied. Well, not if you say, but what preceded this universe was another universe that caused this universe, which is one theory. You know, this universe came out of something else that existed. Because then again, you open up the possibility of an infinite series of universes, which are temporal phenomena, each causing the next one. And you can't have that either, because if there was an infinite series of universes before we get to ours, we would never get to ours because you wouldn't have this infinite series of universes going back in time kind of thing. Now, I know that's an oversimplification of the physics, but the Kalam argument is kind of saying, whatever explains the universe has to be a kind of absolute beginning. Or if you do have a series of universes, each causing the next, that can't be an infinite series of universes either. It has to, it doesn't make sense that it didn't have an absolute beginning. So that defends the second claim. And then you've got the first claim. Well, everything that has a beginning has a cause. So there must be a cause to the whole series of things. And then when you try and think, well, what kind of thing could that be? And that's a kind of further step you can add on to the Kalam argument. Well, it's going to have to be something which itself is not temporal. It doesn't exist in time. 
And really, the only concept we have of something which is atemporal, they would argue, is God. So an eternal being, something that meets the criteria for something outside time that could cause the whole temporal sequence of things to begin, that's how the Kalam argument is meant to be persuasive. Okay, thanks, Mike. That was very comprehensive. Matt, have you got any thoughts about infinity? Um very short one but it's quite interesting if you're looking for a scholar you could use to try to challenge that second premise mm-hmm. about the universe uh, must have had a cause that you've got maybe aristotle you could bring up so of course he, he thought that the universe would have to be sort of coextensive with the prime mover because we got um, motion always trying to, trying to seek out the prime mover so even if for the reasons which you know, michael has mentioned already that kind of reasoning is incorrect. You could always bring up Aristotle just to knock him down if you're trying to look for that kind of point-counter-response structure. If you're writing an essay, you could bring up the um, Kalam argument, bring up Aristotle to challenge it, and then use Michael's arguments against uh, infinity being a cogent idea uh, in order to to battle it down. Great. One quick question from me to, to both of you about all of this material. So, well, first of all, a comment to all the students. So as you can see, cosmological argument is the argument for the existence of God. Is it that exciting? Perhaps not. But actually, the cosmological argument brings in so many interesting philosophical notions, such as causation, contingency, types of existence and infinity. When I was studying this stuff, first of all, when I was a teenager, I, I really got into infinity. But I can imagine that some students, their heads just boggle, right? So, so how do students, how do students get on with this stuff? Do you find? I think it's all right. It's, it's a very difficult idea to get your head around infinity, but um, I think people can understand it. I think the problem is drawing the conclusions from it. You know, Michael mentioned I hadn't ever really thought of it in most terms, but you wouldn't even have be able to have a presence if you had infinite time and um, how would things age? I hadn't ever really considered it in those ways. So you take a concept which you can get your head around, but then when you try to unpack the implications of that for existence, that's when you do run into problems. But that's, of course, the easier doing philosophy. Um, you get to take a, an idea which seems straightforward and then you find it's far more complicated when you think about it more carefully. Mm. I mean, my my experiences, they enjoy they enjoy the mind-twisting nature of thinking about it in the first instance. It's kind of one of those mind-blowing moments in, in philosophy. But then with some time with it and thinking about the paradoxes of an actual infinity, my experience is that most of them kind of get it. We've got the concept of infinity, and that might be coherent, but the idea of something actually being infinite, that's much less coherent. And, and going from something which is seems completely beyond understanding, beyond comprehension, and then working through and seeing and understanding it, actually, that's quite a rewarding experience for a lot of them. Okay, great. So um, let's move on then, because we haven't got ho-ho an infinite amount of time. So uh, I think Matt mentioned Aquinas a little while ago. So there's uh, Aquinas's five ways, and the first two ways uh kind of are going to be in this section. Um, so someone want to start us off on one of Aquinas's ways, but I'll, I'll, I'll let one of you decide which one we do first, because there are different ways of teaching this. I don't mind having a go at um, the t- but these two ways, because mm-hmm. in some ways they're quite, they're quite similar. So these are three of Aquinas's five ways for the existence of God. 
And the other two, of course, we've got uh, gradation, which no one really seems to talk about much of these days, and uh, the design argument. But in terms of the two of his five ways which fall into this category when we're talking about causation, one of them is about motion and the other is about causation in some ways. So the idea is is that um, Aristotle, and he looms large here in terms of his different kinds of causes. And so does his idea of motion. And so Aquinas latches onto this and he observes that all things are moving. And of course, we've got the idea of potentiality and actuality here. So an acorn is actually an acorn, but it has a potential to be a tree. So how does it move to become a tree or something moves it? Nothing can be the the mover of itself. And so there must be uh, a mover doing this. And of course, what about the universe as a whole and observing the movement in it? There must be uh, something which moves the universe, which is external to it. And that's the unmoved mover or the prime mover. Now, when I was growing up, I thought the prime mover was John Travolta. I'd seen Saturday Night Fever. I tried to emulate that. I put my back out a few times, never again. But how wrong I was. It turns out that the prime mover is some divine being, which, of course, Aquinas identified as God, which is the agent of motion in the universe, of individual things in the universe itself. So that's one of his ways. Another one of his ways is very similar in some ways. I understand it as being relatively similar to the Kalam argument that um, every effect has to have a cause to come into being. This is where we can draw upon Aristotle's idea of efficient causation. Nothing could be the cause of itself. You cannot have an infinite regression of causes and effects in the same way you can't have an infinite regression of motion for the previous way. And so there must be something outside of a chain of causes and effects, which uh, is the efficient cause of the universe, and which has itself no cause. And um, again, we call that being God. And um, so those are the two ways which are, are relevant here on that causation side of, of uh, cosmological argument equation. That's great. Thanks, Matt. Michael, any thoughts from you on uh, these two? Yeah, a couple couple things where I kind of develop or refine what, what Matt has said in how we understand the kind of key terms um, here, the notion of motion um, in the first way. While motion, we, we take motion normally literally as kind of movement through space, that's our way of thinking of motion. Um, that's really only one example of the transition between potential and actual, which, which Matt also mentioned. So my way of reading Aristotle and Aquinas is that motion in some ways is far too narrow a translation of what he really means. He means the transition of something potential to something actual. So something could be potentially moving through space and is now actually moving through space is one example. But something could be, for instance, cold, potentially could be hot if you heated it up, and then you heat it up and it is actually hot. And that also counts as motion from cold to hot in Aristotle's kind of use of this term. So I think of it as a a transition from potential to actual. Kind of that's what's going on. So what what, um, Aquinas wants to argue here is that nothing, if something is only potentially something, something which is cold, for example, it can't (laughs) self-heat. It can't make itself hot. It has to be made hot by something else. But the thing it's made hot by, first of all, already has to exist, right? You can't make something hot just by an idea. And presumably it needs to have 
something which is related, which can generate, can change, can have an effect on that thing. So change it from potential to actual. So for example, it needs to be a source of heat. It needs to generate heat like an electric hob or a match or a candle or whatever it is. So that already needs to have the property. It needs to be actual. So at the beginning of everything, before there's anything and for anything, it's all potential. Right, all of us are going to, you know, we only potentially exist or we only potentially have our properties. Something must already exist. Something must already be actual and not potential in order to start things off. And that thing which is always actual and never potential is God. This idea that God is never in potential state, God is always pre existing everything which is changing in this kind of way. And so that's my first refinement, I think, about the, the concept of the notion of motion. And then the concept of causation in the in the second argument, I think of this while that while the Kalam argument is interested in causation and time, as you say, kind of there's that similarity, and there is this notion of infinite regress. The concept of causation as Aquinas is thinking about it in the second way is not about causation in time. It's what can sometimes be translated as sustaining causation, what keeps something in in the position that it's in. And we often think of causation as an event that changes something. But actually, causation can be a relation which keeps something the way that it is. So for instance, I'm sitting on a chair right now. What keeps me sitting on a chair? Well, gravity. Should gravity cease (laughs) to uh, operate, I would float off my chair like one of those astronauts in the space shuttle or, you know, in the International Space Station or something like that. Gravity is a constant force, is constantly having an effect on me and my body. It sustains my sitting on the chair, Does as does the rigidity of the chair. Should the chair suddenly be vaporized, I would collapse onto the floor. Um, so these are kind of sustaining relations. And, and Aquinas has this idea that Anything has to be kind of kept in existence, kept in the state that it is as well. And we'll get onto that with his third way a little bit more. So what sustains something? Do I sustain myself in existence? Um, Does the chair sustain itself in existence? What keeps something in existence? Just like what keeps me on the chair or what keeps me alive existing at all? And as Matt explained, you can't have an infinite regress of things sustaining it. Um, so let's take the gravity example. What keeps gravity going, right? What, what is it that keeps gravity going? And we might try to explain gravity as an effect of the interaction between mass and space. But what keeps space in existence or what keeps mass in existence? Eventually, you've got to come to something which doesn't need anything else to keep it in existence. That's the original, most basic thing that exists. And that's God. Great. That's really helpful, Michael and Matt. Um, let's leave things there because we've gone through uh, three arguments already. We're going to continue this discussion uh, in the next part. We're going to think about another cosmological argument which thinks about causation from Descartes, and then we'll go through a few criticisms. And welcome back. Uh, Before we move into this segment, just to remind you to check out all our other episodes, which you can find on our Podbean site or via Apple, Google, Spotify, and all other good podcast sites. Um, I've also got another podcast series called Philosophy Takes on the News, where most weeks I get a few philosophers together to talk about the week's headlines. 
Okay, so we've introduced the basics of the cosmological argument and discussed three versions of it, uh, each of which rely on some general idea of causation. Um, let's think about one more version um, from Descartes before we start on some criticisms. So, Michael, do you want to introduce Descartes for us, please? Sure. Descartes' version is has some similarities and some important differences. The important differences derive from where in his general theory in the meditations he's got to. Um, so to understand why he says the things that he says and some of the differences, um, we need just a really bit brief bit of background. So Descartes is in a, in a project to try and discover what he knows for certain. Um, and so he produces this um, very strange idea, but one which has been very powerful, that he could be being deceived by an evil demon that makes him think that things ex in the outside world exist when really they don't. And it's just like the evil demon and him, Descartes, his mind. So he, he comes to a kind of first certainty that he exists as something that thinks. So he exists as a mind. And his next move is to try to prove that God exists because he's got to get rid of this damn evil demon who's, you know, hanging around the edges and saying he can't really know anything. And he's going to do that by proving the existence of an almighty, you know, perfect God. That's his, that's his, um, that's his approach. So <laughs> this gives rise to a couple of peculiarities in terms of what Descartes is doing. The first is that, as Matt said at the beginning, the cosmological argument is normally considered an a posteriori argument because it starts from our experience of the existence of things outside our minds and then tries to say, also, well, where did they come from? Descartes' version is supposedly actually a priori because it starts from recognizing that he himself exists. And he can know that through pure reasoning by reflecting on his thinking. He doesn't need sense experience to know that he exists. He exists as a, think as a thinking thing. And so his version of the cosmological argument is like, why does anything exist? And the only thing I know that exists is me. You might think this is the narcissistic version of the cosmological argument. So why do I exist? And what it is for Descartes to exist is just as a mind. So actually, it's an a priori version of the argument. Okay, but otherwise, it, it has some similarities to it. So he starts off, and there's real similarities to Aquinas's second way, the notion of sustaining causation. He says, so why, why do I continue to exist? And he goes, well, I, I'm contingent. You know, I, I could cease to exist. There's nothing that I can detect in my mind which would indicate that I am a necessarily existent being. And he says, I'm clearly not an all-powerful being because if I was, I'd be perfect. And damn it, I'm not. <laughs> I can't make myself immediately omniscient or anything like that. I mean, I'm in doubt, for goodness sake. I don't know what exists. This clearly shows that I'm quite an imperfect being, and that applies to my existence as well. So, so why do I continue to exist from one moment to the next? I can't sustain myself in existence. I don't have that power. Well, nothing can cause itself. We had that premise before as well. So it must be that something outside me, outside my mind, actually is the cause, sustaining cause of my existence. Why do I continue to exist? And these aren't my parents, which you might think in the kind of Kalam argument, that's the temporal cause. What, what occurs for me, you know, it might be my parents, well, for, for two reasons. One is I don't know if I have a body, and appealing to my parents as the cause of my existence is a very bodily, biological explanation of my existence. At the time of write, writing this, Descartes doesn't even know he has parents. It could be an evil demon who's, you know, deceiving him about everything. So we can't really go down that route. But what else is it kind of going to be? Well, here's where the infinite regress comes in. Whatever it is, Descartes says, it's got to have the power to produce a mind 
and in particular, from a previous argument, a mind that has the idea of God. That's going to be an interesting additional peculiarity as well. So he argues that the only thing that he could think of that could produce a mind is another mind, and that the only thing that could produce the idea of God turns out to be God. And we won't. That's, he argues for that in the trademark argument. I won't go into the details of that here. It's a, it's a separate argument. But the thought is, so it could be that something else produced him as a mind, but then we'll just get this infinite regress. So whatever keeps me in existence, either itself can, exists contingently and keeps needs to be kept in existence, or we get to the idea that what it is, is a mind which has the idea of God and can produce the idea of God and doesn't have contingent existence, but exists necessarily, or that is God. So you've kind of got these odd features that the existence of everything for Descartes is just himself (laughs) and himself is just a mind. So it's a kind of supposedly, if it succeeded, it would be an a priori deduction of what keeps Descartes' mind in existence. Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. That was really helpful. So that's kind of four versions of the cosmological argument. All of them have their interesting differences, but we're seeing sort of common themes here. Causation of a sort. We've got infinity going around, all sorts of other things. And this has uh, brought forward some interesting criticisms from people on on these versions of the cosmological argument. Um, So shall we go through some of the main criticisms then? Who wants to start us off? Yeah, so we've got David Hume, that well-known skeptic, who uh, in his dialogues concerning natural religion uh, takes a couple of pot shots at, well, design and cosmological arguments. But uh, probably his most well-known criticism of the cosmological argument, later taken up by Bertrand Russell in his radio debate, with Copleston, is what's become known as the fallacy of composition. The idea here is that just because every human being has a mother, so again, we can think about just because every effect has a cause, we can kind of see that analogy there. It doesn't mean that the human race has a mother. And so in other words, why look for a cause of the whole series uh, of causes and effects? So that's one uh, argument which is often seen as quite powerful uh, against it. I'm not entirely sure it is as powerful as people say it is. Uh, Herbert McCabe, in his book, God Matters, criticizes this idea um, and says that it's not unreasonable for people to try to look for a cause of the entire series. And he's quite critical of Russell about this, that he uses the example of dogs. We see a, a, a dog being born, another dog, another dog. And it's not unreasonable to say, well, where do dogs come from? We can do the same thing with uh, with the universe. We, we can see causes and effects. We can see motion. It's not unreasonable to think, well, where did this, all of this come from in the first place? Why, why stop short? So we're questioning, even if we have to say in the end that it's a mystery. But then Herbert McCabe says it's about mystery we call God. So many people think this fallacy of composition, as it's become known, uh, is some kind of slam dunk argument against cosmological arguments, but I'm not entirely sure it is. Uh, and there are relatively recent books, such as God Matters by Herbert McCabe, uh, which tries to defend the cosmological argument against that accusation. Um, then there's Hume's more general program in terms of his uh, skepticism concerning causation. In other words, just because we see B following A continually, so A happens and then there's B, A then B, A then B, Hume would say there's no necessary connection of causes and effects. And of course, this is much more of a serious argument against, say, Callum arguments. 
some people would say um, the second way of Aquinas is because it could be understood in terms of efficient causation as one thing causing another thing. He talks about ultimate cause, intermediate causes, and then ultimate effects. So some people do read it as chronological uh, succession of cause and effects rather than just referring to constants. Uh, it's a massive interpretation there. So some people say it could be used against the second way of Aquinas's as well. And instead, Hume says we we have a psychological expectation that B will follow A from um, from contiguity, from one thing following uh, from another thing, time and time again. But there is no necessary connection in reality. Uh, there's only a psychological um, expectation. So Hume has those two arguments. And anyone want to jump in and talk about either of those or or, or any other arguments against cosmological arguments? Yeah, Michael, any more sure. thoughts? I I agree. I agree with with a lot of what Matt said about uh, the fallacy of composition, and that it perhaps is not that that powerful because sometimes it's you're absolutely right to to go from the parts to the whole. I mean, there are many cases in which you know, so so Hume is saying, well, look, just because or Russell's version, just because each human being doesn't has a mother doesn't mean the whole human race does. That's that's correct. But there are other other ways in which I can make that leap. For example, every part of my desk is wooden. Therefore, my whole desk is wooden. That works. There's nothing wrong with you know that notion of composition. And we could say well, the universe is like that. The universe is full of things, each of which has a cause. So there has to be a kind of starting point for all of that. And, and, and it might be that you know, where, where does the analogy work better? Does it work with desks? Does it work with human races? You know, there there, is, there are people would argue over that one. So I think that's that's true that that can be that can be challenged. Sorry to jump in there with a desk. That's one individual thing. Yeah, and you could say human race is a concept rather than a thing. So, the, but then you could say, well, is the universe a concept or is the universe a thing? So it's it, it's an interesting one to talk about there. Yeah, discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, different ways of th- understanding the human race. You could say the human race is all humans that have ever existed, and then it becomes a thing. It becomes a set, yeah. a collection. Yeah. But then again, you're yes. quite right. That doesn't cover everything because it's all humans that could exist, isn't it, as well? So there's these different ways of, of conceiving of it. That's really interesting. He, let me add something on, on human on causation. That as well as kind of doubting or questioning our certainties over, over causal inferences and the connection between cause and effect, Hume's also kind of saying, look, every one of these arguments has said this has got to have a cause. So, you know, in the Callum argument, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Or Descartes, well, I don't cause myself, so I must have a cause somewhere outside me. Or Aquinas, well, nothing's self-causing, so it's got to have a sustaining or a temporal cause. Where does this idea that something has to have a cause come from? Can we really know it? And Hume says no. Now, that's called the kind of causal principle. Something cannot come from nothing. That may be true, but can we know that it's true? Now, because these are supposed to be proofs of God's existence, all Hume has to do is show that there's there's a step in the premises there in the argument that we can't know if, confidently. And he wants to say, we can know in our experience so far that things that we have experienced have causes. But to go from there to say that everything has to have a cause is a step too far. That, that would turn out an, on his fork. That would turn out to be a relation of ideas. But everything about causation is a matter of fact. It's got to be based on our actual experience. 
So our actual experience says, yeah, things have causes, but that doesn't mean we can know for certain that everything has to have a cause. Maybe Descartes' mind just popped into existence. Maybe the universe has no cause. It just popped into existence. Maybe something exists without having been caused to exist. So he attacks it that way as well. Hume isn't saying he's confident you know, that some things exist uncaused. He doesn't need to say that. He's saying, yeah, probably everything has a cause, but you can't know that everything has a cause. So there's a weakness in your premise in, and, and in your inference there. So these turn out not to be proofs of God's existence, even if they're kind of good reasons to think that God exists. Yeah, just to come in there then and summarize where we've got to on the criticism. So just picking up on what Michael uh, just ended with. So it might be that from Hume, what we haven't got are proofs, but then you might think what we have are inferences to the best explanation. So good reasons to think. And then you might think, well, actually, they're pretty good reasons, right? So you might still be inclined to think, well, here's a thing. Most things that we know, in fact, everything that we know has a has a cause. So why not think the universe has a cause? It's an inference to a best explanation. Otherwise, we're left with the idea the universe has just popped into existence. And then going back to that early discussion, there's a really interesting uh, moment in our discussion then. Again, thinking about, you know, what the universe is like. Is it more like Michael's desk <laughs> as a thing? Is it more like a concept? And what's interesting here about the idea of, or the actuality of the universe is that it's a unique thing, right? And so we're trying to give an argument for the existence of a unique thing. And I think all in these criticisms, what they bring out is we're trying to reach for things that we're quite familiar with, smaller parts of the universe, and trying to say, well, the universe is like that, isn't it? Or it seems as if it has to act in that kind of way, doesn't it? But but you might always have the sneaking suspicion, well, the universe is a unique thing. So is it cause or does it just pop into existence? Is it like this or is it like that? Is it composed of these things which are all like this or not? And that's a really interesting thing to be playing around with when you're thinking about the cosmological argument. Because in the end, the universe is unique, right? It's it's kind of everything. And I always thought that was, when I was studying this first of all, I always thought that was, that was very, very interesting. Any more thoughts from either of you then about criticism so far it's been one thing is um the argument from special pleading if mm-hmm. everything has that cause what about god yeah uh of course the obvious counter response to that well the obvious counter um, to that would be that god is eternal but then he could say it's still special pleading but of a different kind but maybe special pleading for a very good reason you've got the idea of society or self-sufficiency God could be the only self-sufficient thing about explanation uh, from any kind of antecedent. So uh, why does God uh, have to be that way? Well, maybe because um, God is God, and God is meant to be the ultimate first principle for everything. But then it does seem to be quite circular reasoning. You're invoking the existence of a thing which goes against all the logic which you're using to show that the universe requires explanation. So uh, it does put the theist into a bit of a jam, but then they can try to answer it with good reasons. But again, it then becomes more of a buttress for faith rather than a way to convince the skeptic or the atheist, because you are trying to say, well, God is exempt from the reasoning, but we already have a very clear idea of what God is meant to be like. But here is where you could perhaps draw upon uh, the idea of God from the ontological arguments, or even the fool to invoke Mr. T. 
would say that they have an idea of what God is. Even the atheist has an idea of what God should be like were God to exist. So perhaps you can draw upon that idea. That's great. Really helpful, Matt. Just wondering if we want to say anything more about the, the challenge on the whole Infinite series, going right back to the start of, of this episode. We talked about how you know, supporting you know, the column argument has these lovely, simple claims. You know, everything that has a beginning has a cause. And we've challenged that now through through Hume. And but then the, the idea, well, the universe has a beginning, and, and we well, why did why did they think that? And that was because there couldn't be um an infinite series. And you could challenge that reason for thinking that second premise is true. Or similarly in Descartes or in Aquinas, they say, well, there can't be an infinite series because it could never get started. Is Kang on, slow down. Why can't there be an infinite series of causes? Why couldn't the universe really extend back in time forever? And we've got these ideas of possible paradoxes which arise. But again, Hume's going to come in and say, do you really understand what you're talking about, that you're so sure that this isn't possible at all? You know, what, what is this claim that cannot be an infinite series? Is it a matter of conceptual definition? It doesn't seem quite right. Well, then is it something we have experience of? Definitely not. In which case, maybe we just can't know whether there could be an infinite series or not. So he wanna, you know, wants to sort of cast some doubt on the confidence in which we might say, you just couldn't have an infinite series of causes through time or an infinite series of causes um, sustaining you in existence. We just can't confidently assert those things. So he's got a very similar kind of challenge to that second premise of the Kalam argument and similar points in, in all the other versions that we've had a look at, just allowing for the possibility of an infinite series. That's probably enough said on infinity. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, thanks, Michael. Uh, thanks, both of you. So let's leave things there with criticisms and we'll join you in the next part where, believe it or not, we're going to discuss yet more versions of the cosmological argument. And welcome back. Let's move on then to discuss two more versions. So, so far we've been focusing a lot on causation in different ways. That's often how the... Uh, arguments or the versions that we've looked at previously are are thought about. Um, the next two versions are based on a slightly different idea of contingency. So, Matt, do you want to take us back to Aquinas first? Please? Sure. <clears throat> so we, we've mentioned two of his cosmological arguments so far, but he also had a third, which um, depends upon notions of contingency and necessity. So starting with contingent things, a contingent thing is something which doesn't have to exist. And it comes in and out of existence and is brought into existence by something else. And so Aquinas argues that the universe and everything in it is contingent. It doesn't have to exist. So I'm not the cause of myself. Um, I am contingent. I have come into existence and I will go out of existence at some point and at an undefined point in the future, hopefully not next week or anywhere in the uh, immediate future. I want to get my pension, even if it has to be 70 in order to get it, according to today's news. Uh, so I came into existence, I'll go out of existence, I depend upon something else for existence. And the universe itself contains everything which is, um, anything in it is contingent. So at some point, there were no contingent things, so there's nothing else to bring anything else into existence. So it relied upon something which wasn't contingent but which was necessary so a necessary being cannot not exist and cannot uh, come into existence or go out of existence 
And so as the universe is made up of contingent things, which depend upon other things for their existence and did come into existence, then uh, itself must have been reliant on a necessary being in order to bring it about. So that effectively is, from my understanding, his third cosmological argument. Great. Thanks, Matt. Michael, any thoughts from you, or should we go on to the other argument? Yeah, I think we can. So, so if I if I make a connection to um, <clears throat> to, to Leibniz's argument and from and the principle of sufficient reason in a moment by by thinking about a possible objection that Matt said there, and I I agree totally with everything he said there that that uh, well, Aquinas says, well, if everything in the universe is contingent, at some point there was nothing. There was nothing to bring anything else into existence. And you might say, well, hang on, May- maybe there was always something contingent. Again, that notion of an infinite series of contingent things. Why should we think that just because it's possible for everything to go out of existence at some kind of distant point in the past, nothing existed? Maybe always something existed, but existed contingently. Now, I think that's, a you know, the idea that something always existed but was contingent does have a certain sort of puzzle. It needs some kind of special explanation to it. But nevertheless, you could raise that as a possible objection. Now, Leibniz tries to give us a, uh, an argument which could avoid that particular objection and think about things in a, in a slightly different way. Whether he does or not, you can judge for yourselves. So he, he deals, again, with the notion of contingency and necessity, but he does it in terms of explanations. So we're talking about contingent existence and necessary existence. And one of the things that, that Matt said is that a contingent thing needs to be brought into existence. Or another way of putting it is the existence of any contingent thing requires an explanation. Right. So, so Leibniz says, look, there's, there's kind of two sorts of things that we know about, okay? And because his principle of sufficient reason is giving a sufficient reason for why any truth is true. And on the one hand, there's truths of pure reason, maths or logic. If someone goes, why is two plus two four? Because it just kind of has to be, and you really just need to understand better the concepts and their relation to see that two and two necessarily is four, and then you can stop with the explanation already, you know, that you've got a sufficient explanation. It, it, it has to be that way. But with anything about the, the universe, for instance, everything is contingent. All of our truths about physical objects in the universe are contingent. So why is it this way rather than another way? And Leibniz says, well, you can try and give an explanation of a contingent thing in terms of something which refers to something else which is contingent. I exist because my parents existed. My parents existed because my grandparents existed. And there's kind of a series of explanations. And you could do that with anything. Why do I see the leaves as green? Well, you can. that's because of the light. Yeah, but why do I see light in this wavelength as green? And we can talk about the way in which our retinas are set up and the cones. But why do I have cones in my... And you can keep going with these explanations. So any explanation of a contingent fact that makes reference to another contingent fact just raises another question. And what explains that? So Leibniz says you can't explain, you can't ultimately explain any contingent fact by reference just to other contingent facts. You've got to go outside the whole series. And there's a very similar move that we've seen elsewhere. So if you're going to have a sufficient, i.e. final explanation for any contingent fact, you've got to get back to something which is necessarily the case. So in terms of the existence of contingent beings, we go back to the idea that there is a necessary being, and it's the existence of that necessary being that explains the existence 
of all of the rest of us. And that's Leibniz's argument from the principle of sufficient reason. Thanks, both of you. That's really, really helpful with those two arguments done an amazingly short amount of time. Good explanations. So shall we think, first of all, then about some standard criticisms and then do some evaluation at the end about what we think about, about the, the argument or, or various versions of it. So what are the kind of standard criticisms that are given of these two versions of, of the cosmological argument? Well, with the necessary being, which is, of course, so important for all these arguments, you have Bertrand Russell saying that you cannot have a necessary being, you can only have, say, the truths of mathematics being necessary, for example. So if there is no necessary being, then, of course, the arguments don't work. So if we say, well, you can have, say, one plus one necessarily equaling two, it's necessary that a triangle uh, has three sides, but you cannot have a necessary being. So the first example there pertains to number, the second pertains to concepts, but at the ontological level, if you say you cannot have, or you have Kant famously saying you cannot have an analytic existential proposition. So if we're into that territory, and if you hold true what Russell says, then the argument's in trouble. But then you could flip around the other way, and you could say it's not analytic in the concepts of necessity to exclude ontology. So you could turn it around the other way and say, well, that's just an assumption which uh, Russell is making, and one which is, of course, very convenient for his own worldview. So I don't know what we make of that if you want to turn that around a different way. Yeah, I I'd certainly agree that it's quite hard to, to to think about where the assumptions are are lying or whether they're equally kind of kind of fun, fundamental. Hume wants to say, look, to say that something exists is a matter of fact, so it's not an analytic truth, so it's something we've got to discover through experience. And then Kant develops that further, as Matt's already kind of said, to you know, to say that something exists is just to say that there is a correspondence between your concept of it and the world. And that's all it is. And that that correspondence can never be by necessity. So you can't have that. But as Malcolm points out in his ontological argument, these ideas are saying, well, it can't be necessarily true that a certain being exists, but we're talking about the existence of a necessary being, which is a different kind of existence, which is so so there's a kind of confusion. He accuses Kant and, and Hume of, of being confused over the dif- distinction between a necessary truth and a necessary being. And I think it's quite interesting to think about whether the concept of a necessary being really is an, an incoherent, a self-contradictory concept. I, I don't think it necessarily sorry, I don't think it is, let's take necessarily out it. I don't think it is a, a contradiction in terms that a being could exist necessarily. But I do have problems with thinking that we can infer or deduce the existence of such a being in the way in which we have tried to do so today, or indeed in, in, through other arguments, such as the teleological or ontological arguments. So when you mentioned the idea, Simon, that we're under Hume's sort of criticisms that we shouldn't think of cosmological argument as deductions of the existence of God, but we might think of them as inferences to the best explanation. Now, if Russell and Hume are right, the idea of a necessary being is a contradiction in terms, it's incoherent. There's no way that inferring the existence of a necessary being is a best explanation. It's not even a good explanation. It just leads you into contradiction. But if the concept of a necessary being, a being that exists necessarily, right, it's not necessarily true that it exists, it's that it exists necessarily. If that's coherent, then the cosmological arguments might at least push you to thinking that this is a reasonable 
explanation for the existence of everything, as we said. Great, really helpful. And then just moving us on, any other criticisms we might want to think about in relation to these two arguments or versions? There is the famous rather terse brute fact comment that Russell gave when the Copperston brought up the principle of sufficient reason in the radio debate that we just have to, I alluded to it earlier, Herbert McCabe's criticism of, of Russell, that we should just uh, stop short and not ask the question uh, Russell thought about why the universe is here. Uh, we don't have to look for these ultimate explanations. And I think Copperston's re- reply to him was something like, if you don't sit down to the chessboard, then you can't get checkmated. So in other words, Copperston was, was criticising Russell for not in- engaging in this debate about the uh, the origin of the universe or why anything is at all, why, why there is something rather than nothing. And I, I think Copperston's right here because, of course, Russell wanted to align himself with more modern thinking to do with, say, humanism and, and science and the scientific method and those sorts of things. And yet it's very scientific to try to look for explanations of things. And so why take this method to be so important when it comes to issues such as, say, religious experiences, trying to discount those and saying they're not repeatable? But yet, yet when it comes to the origin of the universe, you take a very unscientific uh, approach there. Um, so why draw the line at, at certain things and not look for a, for a total explanation? So even if it is beyond uh, human understanding now, you could argue, on, say, scientific grounds, why not at least look into it? And, of course, scientists have looked into it um, since Russell was talking. Well, of course, we have the Big Bang, Theory of Redshift, and all sorts of different things. So uh, I think Russell's brute fact comment about uh, the universe, that uh, we should not try to overreach ourselves looking into the origins of things, uh, the ultimate origins of things, uh, I don't think it's a very satisfactory one on scientific grounds, but also on religious grounds as well and philosophical grounds. Um, uh, I do think he comes out of that looking uh, not so great. That's my own personal opinion on it. Great. Thanks, Matt. Can I, can I speak on behalf of a revised Russell <laughs> on that one? <laughs> a a Humean Russell, I suppose. So I think the way he, he expressed himself in that debate was unfortunate. I, I agree with Matt's analysis of it entirely. But if he had said this instead, not that the universe is a brute fact, but that we cannot know whether the universe is a brute fact or not. So this is a this is a this is a very philosophical and to some extent scientific, I think, but it's certainly a very philosophical reflection on the limits of explanation and the limits of knowledge. So you, we were kind of saying, well, maybe the cosmological argument could be an inference to the best explanation. But on what grounds could you reach the judgment that it was the best explanation? You'd have to kind of have some sense, some really you know, sense that, that there are other explanations that you've ruled out. And so I prefer to kind of put this in a way that you know, Kant does with other arguments and Hume does, which is that maybe there are these limits to human knowledge about the origin of the universe. And let's even think about how scientists try and explain this. I, I have some very limited understanding of kind of some of the quantum ideas about multiverses and the origin of the universe. But one thing I understand is that many of these are mathematical models which don't have a, a, a complete agreement across the scientific uni- um, community. And one reason is they're not testable yet. And until we can actually test whether other universes exist, even though the mathematical model at the quantum level makes 
it likely that or makes you think that it does. For many hard-nosed scientists, just having a model of how things might be is not sufficient confirmation. We need in some way to be able to test it. But of course, being able to test whether there is another universe is an empirical test beyond imagination at the moment. So what we should do, following the scientific method and empiricist philosophical reasoning, is say we can't know. The same would, would, it, would be with the idea of a necessary being or something like that. So I would kind of perhaps say, well, the cosmological argument gives us a reason Is it the, to think that God exists. Is that the best explanation? I don't know how to judge that. So we are left, okay, maybe Herb McCabe says you're left with mystery. I would say we're left with ignorance. <laughs> Two you know, could be connected in some way, but maybe, maybe they, they, the cosmological argument forces us to keep an open mind about the limits of human knowledge. And maybe that's enough for faith to step in and, and to show that faith doesn't contradict reason here. Or maybe for some people that's enough to support an atheistic or an agnostic view of the world at least. I do maintain that the cosmological argument is, in my opinion, probably the most compelling reason for theism. I think it's much more compelling than the design argument, and it's much better than the logical trick, which is the ontological argument. I think for me it kind of boils down to the idea of why is there something rather than nothing, even if we appeal to the idea that it could possibly be other universes. And if we're talking in terms of knowledge of those, it, it being well beyond the, the limits of knowledge, I, could, I would have to agree with that. But even if we posit the idea that there could possibly be another universe preceding this one or in some way related to this one to explain this universe, we're still looking at something which would be contingent. How did that thing or that series of things or set of things come into being, whether or not it has any kind of causal efficacy of this actual universe in which we inhabit? And so then we are left with something, the nature of which we do not know. And this is where we bring in the idea of mystery. And that's, of course, where ignorance comes in. We cannot possibly know that which caused the other universe, set of universes, or um, this particular universe, whichever way you cut it, whichever model you choose to use in order to explain uh, our current situation. But that all, all those things or, or sets are contingent. They must rely on something else. And we cannot possibly know whether that which uh, brought these things into existence is anything like the god of classical theism. It could be rather nasty. It could be new, morally neutral. And that's one of one of Hume's points. Even if there is something causing off, causing this whole series of causes and effects, or motion, or contingency, however you want to understand it, or if something is a sufficient reason for uh, these things to come into existence, we can't know the the nature of it from cosmological arguments. It could be like a deist god, which kind of winds up the universe and lets it go. It's perfectly possible, but I do think there has to be something which caused everything to, to come into effect, however, which way you want to understand that according to the different cosmological arguments we've surveyed so far. Great. Thanks, both of you. Why don't we leave things there? Great explanations from the two of you uh, of quite some complicated uh, arguments, their different versions, and some really interesting reflections right at the end. So, Michael, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. And Matt, thanks to you as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it again. Great. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you found it useful. And I hope you check out some of our other episodes in Philosophy Gets Scooped.